Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. You are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences that feature the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. In this episode, two producers from the investigative radio program Reveal give a lesson in how to create an exciting audio story out of a stack of numbers. Here is Finding the People and Sounds Behind the Numbers with Laura Storacheski and Ike Shriskandaraja. So uh, we want we are going to so we're warm now, yeah. now the mic's hot so uh, we want to warm up the audience with uh, a live data sonification experiment uh, testing the vanguard of IRL data sonification this one is all about travel distances to this conference so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna set up four groups for you guys. Um, and then we're gonna assign different sounds based on how far you travel. So, how many people here use no motor vehicle to come? So these Chicago people who maybe took a bus or walked, wait, no, that's not, a, a bus has a motor. Uh, who walked here or took a, or a bike? How about a bus? <laughs> or a train? Where are my Chicago people at? Okay, so for all the Chicago people in the house, could we, could one of you suggest a sound that'll be your sound for, that I'm going to call on later? It could be like a ding or a black hawk, is there a cubs sound, like a bear or something? Oh, you got cubs and bears, it could be a bear sound. Chirping. Chirping. So what is it? You guys all want to agree on a sound? A bird chirping, the, the pigeon, the coop, that thing. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay. Pidgey. Okay, so you're the, you're the, you're the chirp, chirp. You want to practice it once? All right. Okay. All right. That's Chicago. Um, so that's. Um, let's see. The second group. People who came uh, drove across state lines. Drove across state lines in a car. Anybody? Couple? All right. Okay, what sound do y'all want to be? What is that? <laughs> like a siren cat sound? <laughs> That's good. That sound? Okay, all right. Let's, let's practice that one. Drove over state lines. Oh, yeah. 
Okay. So then okay. that was drove over state lines. That was over state lines. How about time zone? Time zone people? Wow. Okay. So uh, do you guys want to decide a, a sound for the time zone people? You can cross time zones? Cross the time zone. Cross a time zone. Ooh, TikTok. Okay, you want to practice that real quick? Wow. Okay. Uh, and then our fourth group are our international guests. Welcome to this great week in America. Okay. Glad to have you. Thanks for coming. What's yawn? Okay. So you guys are the yawn group. Do you want to practice real quick? We're gonna, so this is, it's going to be tricky because you're going to have to keep up yawning, which is a hard thing to do. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and we passed, right, so we, we placed we're... some uh, microphones out there. I hope they're on, just because we thought that might pick up some of what you're doing, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Great. So now I think we're going to start with the sustained Chicago people. Start, and then we're going to build, try to score this. Okay, now, people who drove over state lines. A little more, again, drove over state lines. Uh-huh. Nice. Okay. <laughs> cross, time, cross time zones? <laughs> and came from outside America. All right. All right. That was great. You guys sounded awesome. You know, sometimes data sonification tells us something, and it's not right for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Lesson number one. So uh, we want to, uh, well, I guess, you know, just a little bit about our backgrounds that we skipped is that. Uh, Neither of us have a long history in uh, the thing that we're here to talk about, and we kind of got thrown into it uh, when we started at Reveal. So we're both about a year and a half in to this job where we think about it all the time. Because we work with reporters who bring us like stacks of documents and Excel spreadsheets and statistics, and these are all their findings that they're really excited to convey. And then we have the challenging task of trying to make that work on the radio and make sense and actually come across to people in a story. So this is like something we deal with every show that we work on, I would say. Yeah, every show has some finding that a reporter spent some long amount, you know, months, maybe a year, to, and it's often rooted in a number. And a part of our jobs are conveying those numbers. And we're learning on the fly, you know? So we're going to share a couple of our favorite examples, some of the lessons, and we hope that it's a conversation. So, you know, we're all here to share information and ideas and how to do this better. And there are, should be, those mics are still somewhere, and they're for Q&A. So if you have a question, just because all the sessions are being recorded and they're going to be archived for other people to listen to and learn from, 
um, and laugh at, that if you have a question, just get a hold of that mic so that it can be recorded. Cool. Should we start with the creative examples? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, this first one is, so Laura and I were talking about creative things that we've learned from uh, great examples on the radio that really stuck with us, and we each pick one. I hadn't heard this one example for like 10 years, but it's still like crystal clear in my mind. I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, it's Radiolab. It's from 2008. They are aces at this game, and this is from an episode called Emergence. Picture it. There's a riverbank in Thailand in the remote part of the jungle. You're in a canoe slipping down the river. There's no sound of anything, maybe the occasional, you know, exotic jungle bird or something. And you're looking and you just see whoop, 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 with thousands of lights on and then off, all in sync. Imagine all the trees, as far as you can see, are all brilliantly lit and then totally dark. Brilliantly lit, total darkness. How many of you have heard that example? And did it, did it stick with you too? Like it's, um, and it's illustrating not a number, but a mathematical concept, which is emergence, all these disparate pieces acting in synchronicity, in unison, uh, without communication. Just fish swimming, birds turning, and in this particular example, uh, fireflies flashing. So I'm going to play, that's like a, a really beautiful scored example. Um, I'm going to play a kind of more theatrical, doing things in front of the microphone example. Uh, Planet Money, like us, also wrestles with this question all the time of how to do numbers on the radio. And I asked Robert Smith, uh, he's not in here, is he? Okay, I asked Robert Smith for his favorite examples of like the funnest stuff that they've done. And he shared this example with me. It's um, him and Andrea Seabrook talking about the wealth gap. The CBO report has great graphs and charts to illustrate just how much more the wealthy have added to their incomes over the past 30 years. Sadly, graphs and charts make terrible radio. So I picked up the nerd hotline and got one of the Planet Money team, NPR's Robert Smith. He raided his daughter's stash of Halloween candy corn and came up with a kind of audio graphic so we can hear how people's incomes have changed. And we start with the poor. Each little candy corn is worth about $1,000 of annual income. So let's look back 30 years ago, say. In 1979, you would have made this many candy corns, 10. Okay. 30 years later, you're doing a little bit better in society. You are doing about two candy corns better. Two candy corns better. You're making about $2,000 more a year. Okay, that's an 18% increase according to the CBO numbers here, yes? Absolutely. Okay. Now, talk about the middle. Sure. 1979, if your family made $30,000 a year, you were well in the middle. So here's what 30 candy corns sounds like. You know, not bad. Pretty good for the middle class. Over the last 30 years, you would make about 12 candy corns more. Here we go. Okay, that's an increase of about 40%. Everyone's doing a little bit better over the last 30 years. But the increases are fairly modest all the way up until you get to the rich. Okay. 
Are you ready for the rich? I'm ready for the rich. Now, everyone talks about the top 1%, and so that's what we're going to go to. The whole family would have made, let's say, around $200,000 a year. Here's 200 candy corn. Okay, it's a good haul. How much are they making now? What's the difference? Well, this is the real news of the study. Mm -hmm. Their annual income, their annual candy corn take-home haul. Let me start to pour this. 500... And 50 more candy corns a year, and they're, they're, they're spilling all over the table here. But this, any kid in America would love to have this many candy corns. According to the numbers that I have here, that's an increase of 275%. And when they talk about income inequality in America, this is what they're talking about. Okay, candy corn. So I asked Robert, how did you guys come up with candy corn? And he said, well, we knew we needed particle candy. Which I didn't realize was like a category of thing. And it was around Halloween time. And he also um, told me that they spent a lot of time trying to find the right bowl that would make the right sound for the candy corn to fall into that would sound the best. Um, So if you're doing something fun and experimental, you also have to kind of be dogged in your creativity. That's the lesson for me there. So those those are two... Good examples. We're not just going to give you the good stuff. We're going to give you the, the we're going to give you the misses too, so we can we can learn from them and pick them apart. And um, we're going to talk about the first numbers that we encountered while we were um, young radio reporters. And my example, the first time I in, uh, had to grapple with uh, presenting a number on the radio was when I was at uh, KFSK in southeastern Alaska. It's a, like one station on the dial sort of town. And uh, I was the morning edition host for a summer in 2007, which uh, was an internship, <laughs> which is sort of weird. <laughs> morning edition. You know, you kind of think those guys are, but you know, that could be an entry-level job. Um, and one of my jobs, so this is like a it's, a, it's a little island in southeastern Alaska, 17 million acres of rainforest, even, we have a North American rainforest, and uh, gray, icy, glacial waters, and it's also the, the waterways around it are filled with salmon. Wait, so just to give you a sense, like this, this was my job every, every day I would go in, because I had to go into the archive to find this going to give you just a little taste of what I did every morning. Good morning. It's just before 724 on August 16th, 2007. 55 degrees, blue skies outside. I'm Mike Sreese Kandaraja with KFSK's second newscast of the morning. (laughs) And in, (laughs) in a town that has a lot of salmon and salmon industry. It's the second largest uh, salmon exporter, very productive small island. So fishery news leads the broadcast. I mean, I'm also doing, because it's one station on the dial and you're in a remote place, you have to read like messages to people like birthday greetings and uh, anniversaries and dental appointments to people who live in places with no phone. Alaska is a great place to learn radio. I don't know if anybody's from Alaska in here. <laughs> Big ups to Alaska. Um, and the salmon fisheries was the, the report I would have to 
would lead the news. So here's an example of. Pink salmon fishing was slow during the early part of the season, and it looked like the run may be a repeat of last year's dismal showing with a catch of less than 12 million pinks. 2006 was the worst season in two decades. But this year, in the middle of the season, some areas in southeast are starting to improve. The regional seine total is at about 10 million pink salmon. Southern southeast catches are about 30% above the 10 year average. But northern southeast catches are about 50% below average at this point, according to the department. So you got all that right. <laughs>、uh, maybe you're on your boat, maybe you're reeling in a purse s a i So that was a, an example of how to make numbers not generally memorable to a, a large audience.、Um, <laughs> so. It's full of industry jargon, it's full of numbers without context.、Um, now,、uh, I've been at Reveal for a year and a half, and the, the first time that I had,、uh, my first assignment at Reveal was uh, actually um, to translate this one number. And this, this is when I started to like, think about it and how to actually make those numbers stick. So the, The first story I worked on was with a, a data reporter named Mike Corey, who'd been looking into earthquakes in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is not a place traditionally associated with earthquakes, but, but over the last decade, there has been a crazy amount of them. A lot of them are small, but some of them are、uh, sizable.、Uh, even last week, there was a, a 5.0. 5.3. <laughs> And so Mike Corey had、uh, been working on this,、uh, looking into this issue, and he found out that in 2014, Oklahoma had more than three times as many earthquakes as California. And we wanted to make that idea stick. So this is what we came up with. So, how do you go from almost no earthquakes to being one of the most seismically active places in America? That's what reveals Michael Corey wanted to find out. Hi, Al. Yeah, I, I've covered earthquake safety in California in the past, but that makes sense. This place is known for earthquakes. And then I found out that Oklahoma actually is now more seismically active than California, kind of like a lot more. And I wanted to know what was going on. So, Al, check this out.、Mm -hmm. So, what was that? This is earthquakes in Oklahoma, and we basically ran Oklahoma's earthquake data through a synthesizer to give you a sense of what's going on there. This is about 2005, 2006, so each plink there is one earthquake. Okay, so it's kind of speeding up now, right? Yeah, yeah. This is about 2009, and you're hearing that something is definitely changing. And during the same time, oil and gas prices were way up, and Oklahoma was starting a big increase in oil production. Wow, that is a big one. Okay, yeah, that was the big earthquake in Prague, Oklahoma in 2011. We'll come back to that one. Okay. This sounds like pinball. I, I used to have a pinball machine. Oh, wow, that's a lot. Yeah, this is like today. Yeah, I'm fine, but、okay. is there going to be more? We have no idea. That last part was a 911 call. 911 call. And so hopefully at the end of that, oh, I should stand up again.、Uh, hopefully at the end of that, you, you feel 
the reverberations that people in Oklahoma are dealing with every day. That was the idea, um, and making it stick a little bit more than um, Oklahoma has now, three times as many earthquakes as California. So what Mike did was uh, he took that, uh, he had a spreadsheet of data and turned it into like assigned musical values based on uh, the size of the earthquake and like laid it out over a decade, sped up in that time period. And he made this, like it, it's not, it's not going to work for every data set. You can't go to this well all the time. But um, it is a publicly available, he made the code that he wrote for it open source. And when I asked him if um, radio reporters who maybe don't have a GitHub account yet <laughs> or know what that means. How many of you guys have a GitHub account? Oh, oh that's pretty good. I don't. You guys are awesome. I do now. All right. Um, well, he, he's really enthusiastic. He wrote like a, a how-to. Uh, it's on the Reveals website. He'd be happy to uh, answer any like line questions. And uh, I wanted him to, to give us a little message of hopefulness for anybody wanting to try it. Okay, Ike has asked me, can a radio reporter easily do data sonification? I'll say, if you're the kind of person who likes tinkering with things, pushing buttons and seeing what happens, uh, I think you can totally do it. There's a little code involved, but uh, there's a lot of examples out there uh, with some code, and really all you gotta do is just change things and see what happens. So if you like tinkering and you're even slightly musically inclined, I say go for it. You're gonna do cool stuff. So basically, what you need to, if, if you are considering it, which I would recommend kicking the tires on, you, you just need a set of data where the numbers go up or down over time, and then if you are musically inclined, um, well, in our office we happen to have the benefit of a Jim Briggs, Jay Breezy, front row, who, can, who is a musician and can make those uh, spreadsheets sound gorgeous. And I just wanted to play a raw, the raw, one of the versions that Jim made without people talking over it so you can get a sense
Okay, so that's another really beautiful musical. I just think that's so cool sounding, and it's really haunting. Yeah, question? Do we know where those mics are at? Somebody's got one for you. Can you hear? What's a GitHub account? <laughs> um, does somebody else who maybe uses it more regularly than me? GitHub account is where you stash your code that you're using to create applications or write software, and it's designed so that other people can access it. It's based on open source principles. So you have to know how to code. Yeah? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, it's a good place to start because you are using real examples that people have made work. You could download somebody's code and then run it and see how it works. Okay, thank you. The other question I have is, when you, the pretty stuff that you're putting with the data and the spreadsheets, is there a more conventional narrative repertorial piece to that? Yeah, of course. This is, this is just the... This is, this is just a moment. This is the... These are moments in the This is the lead, the basically. Program. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of what what you can do if you have a, a really smart data reporter who also can write code and a, an engineer who also is a musician and can score things at your disposal. <laughs> I mean, if you got that, yeah. you're fine. Sky's the limit. Just, can somebody pass the mic up? But really, um, Mike give, gave me 50-50 odds, and I would say maybe for you it's 60-40. Of being able to pull it off. If you brought your own data set and wanted to try to use that code. Hello. Hi. Uh, I just had a question. Um, I love the way that sounds with earthquake data. Uh, it's really beautiful. But there's a lot of other data sets that I was just thinking. I don't, I, it's just harder to imagine scoring, like, uh, you know, number of lawsuits filed over time over a particular thing, or maybe something a little bit uh, heavier, like number of hate crimes going up over time. So I was just wondering if you've used this technique for, for uh, stories that you've reported or, or have been reported on things that aren't, you know, like a n natural activity. Or, or maybe that, I don't know, made you, gave, gave you some pause about how do you approach yeah. it considering the subject matter. Well, if I, can, if I could call on Jim for a second to, to talk about the Orlando example. Jim Briggs, everybody. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this. So, I mean, would it be better if you asked questions about it, or or do you want? Yeah, because that was that that was another example. So after the Orlando nightclub shooting, we were making a quick turnaround show that spoke to that event, and Jim produced a a variety of, a, you know, a, of this idea, a sonification mm -hmm. of the lives lost that night. I think one thing uh, that we found, I mean, one, we were working on a much tighter turnaround than we were for, say, the, the Oklahoma piece where we had a lot of time to think about this data set. So I think one thing that we really realized was that, you know, time could force us to make some quick decisions about, I mean, it's, it's almost like an editorial process and they're like, what to cut, what, you know, omit the unimportant, um, you know, how can we do something really direct with this? Um, and it's something that I, you know, I felt like we were lucky in a journalistic environment that we had uh, people on the editorial staff and the producers who were willing uh, to let us do this to kind of signify you know, the, the number of lives lost and then uh, what happens in the, if you've heard the pieces, 
basically you're hearing a sequence where each tone is the birth of one of the victims, and then at the end it comes to uh, an end. And so we, you know, we just found that there were a lot of kinds of data that we had available. Um, there were a lot of different stories that could be told, but what was the one that was the most powerful for us? And you know, it, how could we reduce the data set to you know, give us something powerful to work with? So um, that was something where Mike and I, and then um, you know, we had interns too, who were just furiously you know, trying to grab like, what's the birth date. I mean, if you want to get really granular about it, like I you know, took you know, every month of the year, kind of had a position. So it would be like, if you were thinking about musical bars, every musical bar has 12 possible steps, right? So you know, then that, was, that gave me a cue of like, how to place this with enough variety so that you know, interesting things are happening. Every year has its own tone. Um, so, and those uh, repeat every year. Thanks. Yeah? yeah, thanks, Jim. So let's I don't know. I think that any data set could, you could put it through this. It just would have to match the tone of the rest of the piece that you were doing. And if it's something heavy, then it should sound grave and heavy. And if it's something that's, I mean, earthquakes are pretty serious too, but if it was something that just, you know, had, was just, uh, purely fun, then it would, you could do it and it could sound purely fun also. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about, oh, go ahead. Oh, just one question. Uh, the sounds are very pretty, but uh, unless you're here what's coming down the pike, you really don't know. It's, you know, tinkling of sounds or, or the, the, you know, tinkling in a, in a, in a crate. Do you back announce or how do you, how do you keep the listener understanding if somebody didn't listen to the whole piece? Well, that wouldn't last a whole piece. So that, that would just be the top of a segment, so like a springboard into an issue about earthquakes in Oklahoma. And then we'd go into the why, the how, and the like, political reality of um, what's happening. So it, we wouldn't keep revisit. Like, I mean, I could imagine times where you might want to revisit it or make it thread through other parts. But um, I think it's you know just the same way you would introduce it, like the sound as a character, right? So we're using it as a hook a lot. Yeah, it's not designed to carry all of the information. It's just one way of getting at it. Yeah, like you're not going to get the the difference between fracking and natural gas injection, like wastewater injection wells, by listening to a, a like a Gatling gun of pings and pongs. That comes after. But hopefully you're like leaning in a little bit more. So I'm going to talk about some um, examples that just have to do with writing and reporting and um, that you may have already gotten a clue that this is usually the kind of thing that I end up working on because to me, like, I kind of just lump in data sets, spreadsheets, percentages, statistics. It's all part of some kind of mass of numbers that I try to kind of avoid in um, actual the, actually the radio storytelling that I do. Um, and I just want to, like Ike said, you know, neither of us are, uh, had a, a ton of experience with data sets before starting at Reveal. Um, we're still getting used to it. And I just wanted to play a little bit of the first time that I tried to use a number in a story. Um, this, the, the way that this came about is kind of, I think it's one of a 
trope of how you can end up using numbers in a story. For me, it was just like I heard a statistic that blew my mind, and then that led me to report a story and try to figure out why that statistic was the way that it was. And the statistic was, this was in 2010, and the statistic was that um, one in seven Latina teenage girls will attempt suicide, and that's more than any other teenage girl demographic. So I just was like, whoa. I can't even remember actually where I heard that statistic, but I was trying to understand why would that possibly be true? What would an explanation be? So I decided to do a story for it. I did a story for um, Latino USA, and profiled a girl who was a 16-year-old Dominican-American girl who uh, had just come out of the hospital, and I followed her for a year, right? So I just still had this, like, one-in-seven number as my jumping-off point. Um, And then it kind of turned out through the reporting that her story fit in really perfectly with a small body of research that did explain at least had one like suggested explanation for why that statistic might be. So I'm just going to play um, a little excerpt, one, one scene in that piece so you can get a sense of her. This is from the middle of the piece. Yanira spent three days in the hospital that January. She said she liked the night nurse who called her sweetheart and let her stay up late talking on the phone. At home, that's against her mom's rules. And her mom's rules are where the story really starts. Yanira's mother did not want to be interviewed. Yanira says her mom is stubborn, good at getting what she wants, and Yanira's named after her. I look like my mom, a little. Her black, 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 black hair. My hair is black, black, black. (laughs) The way she smiles, I got that from her. Her sense of humor. What are your mom's rules about where you can go now? I could only go wherever she goes. That's it. There's no discussions, no nothing. No hanging out with friends. No boyfriends. Yanira can only go back and forth between her apartment and her high school. Okay, so that's Yanira's story. And the explanation, which Latino USA ended up kind of building uh, an episode around this story and the research, is just that girls like Yanira feel trapped between being an American teenager and then being a Latina daughters of Latina mothers who weren't born in America who have totally different expectations of them. Um, So there are kind of two sets of expectations put on them, and that was, this is not like, at the time when I did the story, there was one study about this, so sure, there's room for further research, but um, there was at least one explanation for that statistic, and it kind of sent me off on that reporting story hunt. And then there's like a flip version of the same kind of thing. That's uh, a way I like to think of using statistics in your storytelling. Um, I just call this strategy like use just one number. And the goal is that you want to hook people in with your story and get them deep into it, get them caring about a character, get them engaged with the narrative. Maybe there's some twists and turns. And then somewhere in there, you're going to drop in an illuminating statistic. So I stole this technique from Elise Spiegel. Um, She's now at Invisibilia. She used to be at This American Life. I just want to play uh, a couple excerpts from the piece that kind of crystallized this technique for me. Um, This is a piece Elise did back in 2003. And um, 
uh, I just want to want you to pay attention to how the story starts. This is the very top of the piece. This is partly a story about Muslims and non-Muslims not seeing eye to eye, but it's also about how that kind of dispute can affect a family and affect it in a really big way, a surprisingly large way. At least Spiegel tells what happened. This sad story begins with a happy one, a love story set in a location not usually associated with love stories, the West Bank. It was there that Sari met her husband, a man with a wonderful sense of humor who, like Sari, felt strongly about his Islamic faith. Okay, so we do learn in that intro that this is going to be a story about Muslims and non-Muslims not seeing eye to eye. Um, I had already planned on playing this example before this week's news, but it's becoming relevant again because you eventually learn eight minutes into the story that this is a story about um, kids in a Muslim family getting bullied and ostracized at a school in New Jersey. Um, You don't get there for eight minutes. And then 30 minutes into the story, you hear the one kind of contextual statistic that Elise drops into the narrative. And this is the, the mother of those kids who were bullied at the school in New Jersey. I have to believe this was a fluke. I have to. Um, otherwise, it's, it's, it's really hard to keep moving forward. Um, but I also think it's, um, it's a sign of, of our times. You know, it's happening all across America. It's not just happening in our little town here. Um, You know, we hear stories of different things going on and, you know, in schools and places of employment and, you know, public places and restaurants. From his post at the Justice Department, Eric Treen, in his own way, has seen the same thing. There's been a dramatic rise in hate crimes uh, since 9-11 against Muslims, Arabs, uh, Sikhs, who are often mistaken as being Muslim, and South Asians, and and sometimes people with uh, dark skin, such as a a Portuguese man, uh, just because they're perceived to be Arab or or, or Muslim. In fact, says Treen, since 9-11, one in five of the complaints reviewed by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission involves a case of discrimination against Muslims. That number, one in five, is, of course, totally out of proportion to the number of Muslims that live in America. Okay, so I just want to deconstruct that a little bit and just point to a couple of things that Elise does that you can do and that I do. I'm going to play an example where I do them in a minute. Um, Repeat the number. Like, there's only really one number in the story. She repeats it twice. It's just very hard to get numbers to stick in people's minds when they're just hearing them. Even when they're embedded in a really amazing narrative like this, repeating the number can really help. She contextualizes it by saying this is totally out of proportion with the actual number of Muslims in America. Like the one in five statistic, that's kind of striking. But then when you think about that deeper contextualization, it goes by kind of fast. It's not essential. But if you're listening out for it, you can pick it up. Um, and I actually asked Elise, like, a, for a little bit of the backstory of where, how did she find that number, and did she start with that number and then go find the story of this family? How did it all happen? Did she ever think about starting the story with the number at the top? So I asked her that. Did she ever think about just starting with the statistic? And she says, I will say to that, No. I would never start with numbers unless the numbers were so insane that they made my mouth fall open just hearing them spoken out loud. 
My basic feeling is you just have to catch people immediately, particularly these days. You need to give them something that holds them in the first 20 seconds. Narrative is much more likely to do that for me than numbers, so I would usually start with narrative. And then I asked her, like, okay, so you started with the narrative. She must have heard about the, the story of this family and dug in and reported with them. And then so I asked her, okay, well, where'd the number come from? When did you first hear it? And she says, I do remember when I heard about the statistic. And I'm sorry I don't have a better story here, but the truth is that the amazing Julie Snyder, who's here, I think, doing a session this weekend, was editing me. And she listened to the first draft and was all, call the Justice Department and get their side. So I did. And I talked to Eric Treen and got the statistics from him. So to me, there's just like two takeaways. Like, great editors are great, because I think that makes the story much stronger. And, um, and second, just when you have an opportunity to show the scope of a problem, one statistic can really, really go a long way. Um, and I'm just going to play uh, an example of when I really did just bite Elisa's style and um, use just one number in a reveal story. This was um, a reporter named Maeve McClanagan in London who um, is primarily a print reporter, and she had been doing a really amazing investigation for over a year about this quirk in the immigration system in England where if you're under 18 and you come into the country seeking asylum, you can kind of get caught in this weird netherworld where they don't grant you asylum, but they don't deport you. And so there are all these teenagers in the UK who are waiting for their asylum cases to get sorted out, but they don't get sorted out. And then when they turn 18, they can be deported. So they go to school, they learn English, they assimilate, and then they're deported to back to places like Afghanistan. And so when... Maeve brought the story to us. I'll just like, this is what she wanted to put in the radio story. She had been working on this. She's an investigative reporter, been working on it for over a year. She sent me this kind of list of facts she wanted to put in. In 2015, more war refugees than in any prior year since World War II flooded Europe from the Middle East and Africa. In 2015, 54% of kids seeking asylum in the UK were given a form of temporary leave to remain. If you look back over the decade, it's even more. 66% got temporary status instead of refugee status. Afghan children were being given asylum at a much lower rate than other children. In the past nine years, Afghan children were more than twice as unlikely to get asylum than the average child. And it just kind of goes on. There's a bunch more. I won't read them all. But if you're like me, you want to know about this, but you're starting to get kind of lost because there's a ton of numbers there. So when Maeve brought the story to us, she had been working on this from a lot of different angles, but there was one main guy she had been following, so we decided we'll just build the radio story around him. We're going to go deep into his story, and then um, we just dropped a statistic in one scene in the middle, and this is a scene after he's turned 18, he's 19, he's been detained um, in an immigration detention center and uh, isn't sure if he's going to be deported. And the only person he really knows who can help him is his English teacher, Laura, so that when you hear the name Laura, that's who that is. While he was in detention, he was handed a plane ticket seven times and told to get ready. He'd be deported soon. Laura helped him find a lawyer and stop every deportation attempt. By the time he got out, after three months, they were like family. I can say she's like my mom like my sister, my date and everything, because she cares about me so much like a parent. 
But after that, Abdul felt different. Like being returned to Afghanistan was a real possibility. In fact, after a long battle getting data out of the government, I found that in the last nine years, more than 2,000 people like Abdul have been sent back to Afghanistan. 2,000 people who'd arrived in the UK as children, been given temporary permission to stay, studied, learned English, and then were deported after they turned 18. Okay, so it was really tempting to use a bunch of those other statistics, especially because he's from Afghanistan, and we learned that kids from Afghanistan are much more likely to be deported. They're, they're less likely to receive asylum. But in the end, like, we just had to choose the one really powerful statistic, and to me it was the fact that there were 2,000 other people like this. So it's all about context. And once you get to know Abdul and like, in his family relations and like, the close ties he has, and to picture 2,000 kids just like that, like, just uh, is uh, heartbreaking to me and a, a nice example. We're going to have a quick break and be back in a minute. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, ReSound. ReSound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, I'm going to stay on the teens, uh, Beat. <laughs> and, Teen beat. Uh, <laughs> and um, play an example where this, this is a, a youth radio story. Um, 
it's a first-time reporter. So before I worked at Reveal, I worked at Youth Radio. Um, and I was working with this uh, young reporter named Edna Miller. And it was her... It's one of my favorite youth radio stories. I think it actually was nominated for a third Coast Award for news feature last time. Straight out of the gates, you know, the first time. It's pretty good. And um, she was really out of her comfort zone. It's a story about uh, this youth decoy program that police departments use uh, teenagers to do straw purchases in front of. So it's a teenager asking somebody to buy a six-pack of beer or a pack of cigarettes. And we did a ride-along with the a, with a Alameda sheriff, and she's not very comfortable with cops. So she was, all that to say, she's out of her comfort zone. And here is that segment. I want you to listen for the number just keep in mind like what we've been talking about, and I'll ask you a question. What number stood out to you afterwards? I'm in an unmarked car, charging towards a startled man in a black Chevy. He's trying to drive off. Oh, my God. The sergeant jumps out of the driver's seat and runs towards the suspect on foot, while out-of-sight officers in bulletproof vests swarm in, cutting off the man's escape routes. Oh, snap. His crime? Buying a six-pack of Coors Light for an undercover team. I'm Daniel. I'm the decoy. <laughs> I'm the guy that messes up people's days, I guess. That's Daniel Gardner, an 18-year-old youth decoy. Plain clothes and not wearing a bulletproof vest. He's undercover with the Alameda County Sheriffs. The officers just arrested a middle-aged man in a sweatsuit. The violator, a guy named Fred, is the fourth person busted for buying alcohol for a minor at this location in the past hour and a half. Fred has his reasons. I was going to tell you why I did it. Listen, listen. You're the same height as my son, and you look kind of like him. You're white, though, but you look kind of like the same bill. You feel me? All that drama and a $200 to $1,000 fine may seem like a severe penalty for selling tobacco to a minor. Back at the alcohol decoy operation, Sergeant Schuler says these things sometimes catch people engaged in worse crimes. A lot of times what we find is the people that are willing to buy alcohol for a minor, a lot of times they've been involved in other criminal activity. According to the statewide agency that sponsored these operations, about 10% of people cuffed today actually went to jail on crimes ranging from drunk driving, illegal drug possession, to resisting arrest. So... What was the most important number to you in that segment? Two. Four people in the last hour and a half. $200,000 fine? Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Okay. To, you know, it, I, I love this piece, but I think the most important number kind of got lost in it. And it got lost in, in our editorial process. It got lost in, uh, this was on Marketplace, it got lost in theirs. But when I played this as an example for a group of teenagers considering youth radio, they got it immediately, and it like took me aback. And it was that this, this sheriff says a lot of people, a lot of people are out here doing bad stuff, and we're catching them. Like we're cat, you know. And then when we ran the numbers and like went through all of the arrests made that day, ten percent, ten percent had. Parking tickets, like outstanding, um, you know, the list that she gave. 
that's not a lot, you know. So they were more attuned and zoned in on that. And uh, I thought that was a, sort of a, a missed opportunity. One, uh, so the two lessons I take away from that is when people say casually, like, in tape, a lot or most or few or, you know, those are, those are words that have numerical values attached to them. And don't let those go by unchecked or unconsidered. Cats. <laughs> Let's lighten the mood. We're going to make a hard turn to cats. <laughs> okay. This is, a, this is a, a, an excerpt from a story, uh, a reveal story um, that a, a colleague of ours did. Aditya Sambamurthy looked into the policies around what to do with feral cats in cities across America. <laughs> so, you know, it's not all about uh, deep injustice and uh, sexual violence and people getting, you know. This one's about cats. And uh, this is a story about um, one of his findings was that the, the major policy that cat proponents are pushing is a trap, neuter, return in the, the segment they're going to call it TNR. And that's catching cats, you know, rounding them up behind the Aubon pan and neutering them and then returning them to the streets. Um, and it's, uh, it has a shaky scientific premise. Will trap, neuter, and return help reduce the cat population? I looked at a bunch of studies that reached different conclusions, and then I spoke with Dr. Patrick Foley, He's a population biologist at California State University in Sacramento, and he's the only academic who's analyzed two of the largest, longest-running TNR projects in the country, one in San Diego, the other in Gainesville, Florida. Cat populations were not significantly going down, and that's probably the single take-home lesson here. Meow. Dr. Foley says the problem is that cats are so fertile, a single female can give birth to as many as six kittens in one litter. Within four years, that cat can have as many as 4,000 descendants. And after eight years, the number jumps to as many as 64,000. All from one cat. I don't think that needs any explanation, right? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm going to play one other reveal excerpt that um, sounds also sounds a little different this week after the election. Um, this is a strategy that it's kind of related to the, I heard a statistic that blew my mind and I wanted to do a story about it, but it's sort of a twist on that. Um, I was doing uh, some stories on voting rights in Texas, and my editor, Andy, told me that um, if everyone who could vote in Texas voted, Texas would be a blue state. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's pretty amazing. Um, and it had it, a strong relationship to some of the stories on voting rights that we were doing in the hour. So I wanted to find a way to illustrate that on the radio. I decided to call uh, to go see a political scientist in Houston named Bob Stein and try to have that idea come out in a scene with him. And this is what happened. 
voter turnout in Texas is low. It's especially low among Hispanic voters. On the whole, only about one in five eligible voters in Texas actually casts a ballot. So I started thinking, what about those other four eligible voters? What if they all voted? And I asked Bob Stein that. What would that outcome look like? It would, it would be less... I still think Trump would win, but probably not. Can't you just hear Bob thinking about this question while he answers it? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't sound like he really knows the answer. That's because he doesn't. But he didn't want to stay in my fantasy world of 100% voter turnout. Because that's absurd. It would never happen. Bob kept steering things back to the real world, so I kept asking him the exact same question. Just in this fantasy world where 100% of eligible voters vote, what happens in the presidential election? I think there is a reasonable chance that Hillary Clinton could win, could win the, the, uh, the state of Texas. There's a good chance that Hillary wins or Hillary wins Texas? I think just a good chance. Bob actually got so obsessed with this question that after our interview, he crunched more numbers and he sent me an email with a new answer. He said he had underestimated the power of these Democratic voters. He wrote that if every registered voter voted, not just eligible voters, people who have already registered, Hillary wins Texas by a long shot, somewhere between 81,000 and 500,000 votes. You heard it here first. <laughs> Hillary won. <laughs> So I broke the rules a little bit and just added in some statistics at the end, some numbers at the end about the number of votes. I don't know why I did that. I feel like those could have probably not been included there. Um, but I think what really helped that scene work was the fantasy world music, again, from Jim, who helped us kind of make that come alive a little bit. And um, when I went into that interview, I thought Bob Stein seemed like this like super energetic guy who was really fun to talk to on the phone. And I thought he would just like go on this journey with me and he was not into it at all. Like he just kept kind of wanting to talk about his other research that has to do with real people outside in the real world and how they behave in elections. And um, so I had to kind of make his reluctance part of the scene. Um, and I think we're just about to, we have like 10 minutes left, and I just, we wanted to talk about In the Dark um, as a really amazing example of using numbers and graphs effectively on the radio. Is anyone from In the Dark here? Madeline's here. Oh, hi, Madeline. Yay, okay. Awesome. Um, so there's a lot that we could talk about with In the Dark. How many of y'all have listened to it? All right. Okay, if you haven't listened to it, listen to it. Just the basic premise is it's a nine-episode podcast that explores the disappearance and, as we know now, murder of a boy named Jacob Wetterling 27 years ago in Minnesota. And it goes a lot of different places, but the main question is... Um, why did it take 27 years to solve this crime, and what were the ripple effects of why that investigation went so badly? Um, so to me, like the, I love the whole thing, but episode eight is where it really like hits a crescendo, and um, the the main question in episode eight is this local sheriff's department that was investigating this crime um, was there. Some other is, hold on, I just want to actually read. 
how good are they really at solving major crimes? That's like the big picture frame question. How good are they? How good is the sheriff's department at solving major crimes? Um, And this episode goes in a lot of different places, but to me the real numbers stuff comes in when Madeline and their data reporter, Will Craft, um, do a lot of work and create a graph that shows the solve rates or the clearance rates of the sheriff's department. And in the very beginning, when we first got into this room, um, I think in that Planet Money piece, um, Andrea Seabrook said that graphs and charts make terrible radio. And what's amazing to me about this example is that it totally proves that wrong. So they've got this amazing graph, and they do a lot of stuff with this graph in the episode. You should just listen to it. But this was my favorite scene with this graph of clearance rates where Madeline brings it to the sheriff who's the guy who really should know all about it and is the one responsible for it, and she makes him answer for how low their clearance rates are. This is our diagram. Sheriff Sanner took the sheet of paper in his hands and stared at it. So this is the percentages of the clearance rate. So highest in the 80s, 38% in 84, and then kind of 20s, 30s, and then as low in 2000 as 8%, and then 16% in 2014. These seem very low to me. Like, is this an acceptable clearance rate? I don't think anything under, under 100% is, I, I, don't, I, want, I want to clear everything that we get involved in. Sure, but and you're not going to be able to clear 100%. So it's no, like, but I, what's I, the I, threshold of, <clears throat> you know, is there a bar that's, you know, Every year, let's aim to clear 60% or let's aim to clear... The bar is we aim to clear them all. So then why is there such a gap then between like... I I don't know. I have no idea why there isn't. Again, I'm not satisfied unless it's 100%. Madeline, since you're here, would you mind saying something if I asked you a question about this scene? Like, did this scene go the way you thought it would go? Like when you brought that graph... And do you have a mic there that's on? I do, yeah. Um, I didn't know what to expect, I guess. I mean, I thought of different scenarios, like, what if he knows the clearance rates? What if he doesn't? What if he, like, pulls out his... What if we have, like, dueling graphs, you know? What if he has his own, and we're, like, matching them up? Uh, I did. I was surprised by him saying, I want them... Just looking at these numbers and saying, well, I want him to be 100%, and just... The fact that he hadn't thought about this. Like, he was looking at new information that was really, like, his own information from his own agency was surprising to me. And you guys do a lot with this graph. Like, by the time we get to the sheriff, you've already brought it to another expert who's kind of interpreted it. And before that, Will brought it to you, and you kind of respond to it also. Like, did you realize the graph would be so... When did you realize the graph would be so important to this episode? It's like a character in the story almost. Pretty early. So, I mean, we had Will, like, go off and not tell me what he was doing. Like, he would, and he would want to tell me. Like, I would see him. He'd be like, I, like, no, 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 I'm not listening, I'm listening. Because I didn't want to know. And so when we were in a studio and he was telling me, um, I had him make a graph and then show it to me and I didn't know what the numbers were. And then it worked because it was really clear. Like, I understood it right away. And then we're like, we're totally using this. We're, like, taking Will's. And we knew we had the audio from... My discussion with Will, so I'm like, we have, need one graph for this thing. Because he had others. Like, the full audio, as like most data reporters would 
be more interested in, has like 30 graphs, you know, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> but that was the one that to us was the most important, so we wanted to bring it all the way through to the end. I love that you made him hide what he was working on. I wondered about that, because it sounds real, like you were actually responding in the moment to what he brings back to you. That's like, I'm, I aspire to use that technique someday. Um, and, <laughs> and Ike's going to just play one other excerpt from that episode. If you, you want to hold on to the mic in case people have another question, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, I, I love this episode, and I think you guys did a phenomenal job and is a great illustration of like, you know, the, a, a master's level course on the tactics that we're talking about today. So after we meet this sheriff and you feel him fidgeting in his chair and not giving a very satisfying answer, um, Madeline goes like one level farther and then another, like, she keeps coming back to him. And I think that this is, like, a great moment where you're using, a, like, a graph to, like, just go for this guy's jugular. You know, he becomes the personification of this problem. And he's, like, his answers are, like, well, it involves a lot of luck, you know? And then uh, he's, like, well, uh, he's talking about luck and wishes. And you're just, like, oh, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and you get, you get, like... And at the at like the boiling point of the listener, then you do this turn, and that's the next clip. So this is what we've settled on in this country as the best way to handle solving major crimes. To leave it up to people like Sheriff John Sanner. Sheriffs who don't know their clearance rates, who have no clear plan about how to improve them, and who refuse to look back and see what they could have done differently. And Stearns County isn't the only place with a crime-solving problem. There are all kinds of places, all across the country, with Part 1 clearance rates in the single digits or not much higher. Farmington, New Mexico, your average clearance rate from 2005 to 2014 is 13%. East Chicago, Indiana, your clearance rate is 9%. Honolulu, your clearance rate is 6%. Assumption Parish, Louisiana, your clearance rate is 12%. King County, Washington, your clearance rate is 5%. And then we just, like, see the devil in every town. Um, and I thought that was really nicely done. I don't have a question. Does somebody have a question from Madeline? I just want to compliment. Yeah, we have like two minutes left. Um, I just wanted to ask, how did you choose those towns at the end? I asked Will to like come up with 15 towns, and then we just pick some. We wanted to have it geographically dispersed, and we didn't want to have it be major cities that people might already know about. Like We wanted to spread it out. How much more time did it take for him to find out those clearance rates in all those places? Oh, gosh, I'd have to ask him. Uh, that, not as long, because he'd already done some work, but he did all the clearance. The clearance rate thing in general took him six months. Wow. All of it, yeah. He did a ton of work. There's one more question in the back. Uh, did you think that those similarly low numbers almost validated what you're finding in your local department in kind of showing that 
there might be reasons why it was difficult. How did you contextualize that? Yeah, so um, share the they're not the only ones with a really low rate, but there were some, we talked earlier in the episode about how there are some places that solved like almost all their crimes and that nobody knows why like there's this big difference between like some places solving almost all and other places solving almost none. And so our thinking was, you know, if people are thinking, well, I'm glad I don't live there, that we wanted to challenge that. So that's where we went in the end. One last question. Is they give you the power to make a statement. And a lot of times in journalism, we're afraid to say stuff because we want to make sure that we're not being impartial. But Madeline had the reporting. She had the... Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad. And I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Statistics, she had this sheriff who could not respond to anything, so then she was able to say, this is what this tells us, which is basically, you know, it's not luck to solve these cases. You know, we have the, we have the ability to solve them, but we don't have the talent or we have these bozos who aren't doing the work. And I, I mean, I just, you know, not to embarrass you, Madeline, but I just want to applaud you for that because like the lesson, you know, we're talking about ways to make data relevant. There's no better way to make data relevant than to come to a conclusion like that, that you can land on and leave the listeners with. Um, so congratulations. Yeah, I can't think of a better place to end than that. So thanks everybody for coming. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. Special thanks to Shelley Staffins, who recorded and mixed all of the presentations from the 2016 conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. Okay, speak soon. Bye.